This is Sean Wallace with Centric Business Tech Talks. Today I'm talking with Matt Miller, Joe Hours, and Chris Urian about our topic, Agile Patterns and Practices. We're kind of taking a look at Agile 10 years later, 10 years after most of us have been involved with it. Basically how we got started in Agile, what does it look like now, what are the trends and where is it going into the future. Matt, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Matt Miller. I'm an architect at Centric Consulting. I've been doing Agile for eight or nine years at uh, different clients and different uh, organizations. I've been a tech lead, a developer, filled in as Scrum Master, Iteration Manager a few times. Uh, so I've got uh, various perspectives when it comes to Agile. Joe? Hi, I'm Joe Hours. I head up uh, Centric's Modern Software Delivery Practice. I've been doing Agile for well over 10 years, practiced in Scrum, Kanban methodologies, and done some ad hoc training. Really, really excited to talk about this particular topic today. I think a 10-year retrospective is exactly what the industry needs, so uh, thanks for inviting me to join this podcast. Mr. Urian. Yes, I'm Chris Urian. I'm a senior manager with uh, Centric Consulting. I work with different Agile teams, so I've been playing the role of uh, Scrum Master, Agile Coach, uh, helping teams focus on continuous improvement through some of the practices that Joe mentioned, Scrum, Kanban, I mean, getting them to kind of focus on the Agile mindset with kind of a focus as well of practices and techniques that we can use to kind of engage in that mindset. My name is Sean Wallace. I've been with Centric about eight and a half years. I'm an architect at our Columbus business unit. Um, I've been working on, on Agile projects for about eight or nine years, and various uh, clients, big or small. So, you know, I've really enjoyed working in that space and the things that I've learned and the new patterns of practices that have made me better at what I do. So let's get started. We're 10 years in, right, for us, for most of us. Agile's been around, the, kind of the Agile patterns of practices have been around about 15 years, 15, 16 years, but we're like 10 years into this game. What are your first impressions? 10 years on, has it been the panacea that we expected it to be? Is, you know, what have we learned? What patterns have we, have we adopted? What kinds of things has fallen by the wayside? What are your general observations about the last 10 years of agility? Well, I think the last five years of the past 10 years have been phenomenal uh, in terms of advancing Agile and its incorporation into, you know, corporate America. What's interesting from my perspective is uh, because I, you know, I'm in a national practice, I do a lot of traveling around the country, and it is kind of surprising the different levels of maturity that you see, but I get the benefit of having experienced some of those challenges and be able to convey what those challenges are and, you know, kind of navigate teams through them. I will say that, you know, from my perspective, some of the early promises of Agile were a bit oversold. I, I think immediately a lot of folks and consulting firms in particular are probably guilty of jumping on a bandwagon of saying that Agile was going to be faster, better, cheaper. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, the work is, is the work and Agile isn't a panacea for getting things you know, in the golden triangle, faster, better, and cheaper. However, it does bring transparency. It did bring the concept of minimal viable product, which really enabled technology teams to start talking with the business about, hey, we can deliver some incremental value faster, enable you to capitalize on that while we're building out the rest of this, but we can also adapt to changes and pivot, move in new directions, start to talk about, you know, we can try feature A, if that doesn't work, we'll try feature B, see if we get more traction with our customers. So we definitely have come uh, a long way, but we've definitely had some really good lessons from the School of Hard Knocks. 
Now we're all consultants. We've worked in, in consulting. We, at least three of us, were working together, you know, eight, ten years ago on some of these same projects that, that we're talking about. Consultants go, you, you do something, you get pretty good at it, you try to package it and you try to reproduce it. And I think what we found is, is that there's different levels of adoption, like you said. There's different levels of maturity and there's a different need. And then there's a different culture wherever we go. We learned from the fact that we tried to productize it. We didn't do so hot at that. And then we evolved it into a set of patterns and practices that we can couple together from a menu of things that help us now. What was kind of weird that we started, you know, we started doing ceremonies, we had stand-ups, we did retrospectives, we had team boards, we got out of some digital tools and some physical tools. We started some, we started doing testing like we didn't do it before. We started deploying more often. Um, what kinds of things did we learn out of that space? What kinds of things, patterns of practice stuck? What kind of, kind of lessons did we learn? We drop anything like a hot potato? Well, did we absolutely. pick up anything else? <laughs> the, I would say the biggest thing that we dropped was uh, underestimating the OCM impact of doing Agile, right? We as practitioners, when we heard Agile, uh, many of us were immediate champions because we knew the process was broken. We knew the way we were doing things was broken. You know, waterfall projects were notorious for easily being, you know, six months behind schedule, 20 to 30 percent over budget without question. It became such a big deal that PMI, as part of their PMI certification process, started ahead of talking about sandbagging and schedules and the fact that you shouldn't do that because then that destroys your actual tracking. Well, we were so horribly bad at estimating and we were always missing that people just added in that buffer so that it could be consumed. And of course, as good humans do, we always consume every bit of extra buffer possible. So when Agile came along and we're like, yes, let's break this into smaller pieces. Let's make this easier to, to churn through. Um, let's make it transparent. Let's pivot and adapt because we know requirements always change. Great, we're all behind this. Let's go forth and do. Oh look, here's this little 13 page scrum book that says this is how you do scrum. It's easy to understand, easy to digest. Boom, go forth and do. And then we never accounted for the OCM impact around that. Right? How does a particular person's job change in kind of this new construct? And there's a difference between running through a process and a practice versus really adopting the principles and tenets of, of Agile. And so I think that that was probably our, our biggest miss that I think we're now starting to get our arms around across the, the country, if you will. And so I'm happy to see that we're getting some uplift in that space. But when you talk about hot potatoes we dropped, we, we really dropped the OCM aspect. I remember thinking that everybody was going to say, this is awesome, let's go. And a lot of people didn't like it, didn't like the approaches. They liked the way that we, that we did things, the fact that you gave them a stack of requirements and said, we'll see you in six months, you know, and we didn't deal well with that in, in my experience. That was something that we learned and it's something that I think we've remedied. I think we've, you know, got a track record of successful delivery. We've purposely spent time trying to engage the people on the projects that we think you know may or may not be as as adept or or as willing to adopt those new patterns of practices. You know the industry has you know, it's just the way you do things now, right? Yeah, and, and you talk about it from a team standpoint, right? And do people really want to be part of this? Transparency is a big thing. That person that used to sit there and do their little thing, all of a sudden you have cards on a board you're talking about every day, and something doesn't move from day one to day two. They can no longer kind of hide behind some of that. Some people in that environment just aren't comfortable in that. You know, I've worked with teams where like what do you mean you're gonna put you know before it sat in a spreadsheet and I was assigned to 20 things and now you're talking about 
hey, you're going to pull one thing at a time, you know, you know, stop starting, start finishing work. They're like, but if I have 10 things I'm assigned to, then it looks like I'm working on all of them when I'm really not. Some people struggle with that. But then other team members are just like, this is great. This is fantastic. We see what's going on. We can kind of move things through there. But that whole OCM piece, the team piece, the people, people factor, I've seen over the last four or five years, that part is now being factored into things. You know, you can't, as much as you want to just grab people from an organization and say, okay, now you're an Agile team. Here's the two developers. Here's a BSA. Here's a tester. There's dynamics in there. There's the transparency side of things. There's that safety, psychological safety side of things that say, hey, am I fear-based and I want to say something in the team or am I going to, you know, be trust these people that I've been with forever? So that highly performing team and working in those teams isn't something that happens overnight. You know, it's something that builds upon and if a team thinks they're done or they made it, then they're not really discussing their problems, discussing their things. You're never there. Transformation is a word we use, right, in the space, in the industry. You never, never get there. You're always talking about continuous improvement and getting better. The people side of things, that's one of the things I focus on, you know, when I'm working with different, I don't have the competency to talk about whether I wrote this scenario correctly or tested this thing correctly or wrote this object the right way. You know, looking how the team interacts and how the people side of things is a huge thing that I'm observing when I work with teams. Other things that have kind of stuck in my mind with Agile and not, not just in Agile, even other types of projects are morning stand-ups. Everybody has stand-ups if they, they say they're doing Agile retrospectives teams you know everybody did them at least for a while there's different degrees of consistency with different projects uh, in that regard but I think like Chris was saying teams that really treat their retrospectives like experiments treat each iteration as an experiment that's that's how you get better and you keep getting better and you don't you don't stop if you if you set uh, an experiment for each iteration and have some measurable outcomes to know whether you were successful or not and if you're successful keep doing it if it wasn't successful throw that idea out and you've got to always evolve your process um, or you know, you're not gonna keep getting any better the idea is that we try something out that rather than try to hash out every permutation and combination of how this particular thing might work out we just try it. and that when you talk about organizational change management well let's try it out if it seems reasonable let's try it out it doesn't work kill it. You have data from that to say, hey, this experiment worked or didn't work. Even if it didn't work, the team may want to try it again. You know, those type of things that, that are out there. People say, it's win or lose. You know, it's, it's more win or learn, you know, type of thing. It's like, hey, did we, di okay, didn't work, but we learned something from that. Let's try to implement that or try something else with our team. So, Yeah, I, I would say from a leadership perspective, Chris, I mean, you, you're dead on. It's it almost always been win or lose versus win or learn. Right, failure was a loss and wasn't to be tolerated, as opposed to failure just being a learning opportunity. I think we're seeing that change uh, from leadership, but I'll be honest. At the end of the day, the business really only cares about delivery. Right? They they have a request. They want IT to deliver. They've got business goals that they're trying to achieve. So their focus is always going to be on delivery and not always on learning and not always on improving, unless you can prove concretely that there's going to be some improvement with a given experiment. Um, so I still see friction in that space when it comes to, to retros. So much so, so that there are still a lot of teams that engage in retros. That they'll have a list of items come out of it, but they won't actually implement it. That's one of the things that 
you know, I, I would point out is we still have a long way to go and work on, on leadership and getting them to really adopt an agile mindset and be about empowering the teams as opposed to harnessing the teams. Yeah, hey, the, the concept, right, of we want the teams with and focus on continuous improvement, right? That's kind of driven from below but supported from above. Yeah. So it's one of those things where, you know, you just kind of like, okay, some leaders come down and they hear something and they want to solve it right away, right? That doesn't help a team. I often hear in the scrum master space, it's like, so what does the scrum master do? They remove impediments. I was in a training class, I said, no, we don't. They're like, what do you mean you don't? I'm like, well, if I remove every single impediment, my team doesn't grow. If I'm always solving every single problem, then how are they going to learn? So there's stuff that obviously I'm helping type of thing, but if I'm solving everything, then I'm not letting them kind of learn and grow and figure things out on their own, you know? Little tricks, just like, hey, don't show up for a stand-up, right? Did they call in? Or, hey, I'm late for a, a backlog refinement session. It's like, hey, they started up, you know, you're kind of like, yay, you know, those type of little things that lets the team kind of grow, so. Yeah. One thing that I underestimated was the value of being a part of a team. Because when you work together in the way, in a collaborative way, when you work together as a team, that you do build a sense of camaraderie and esprit de corps. You, you build a team and you go to lunch together and you do things together and you work, you have a shared notion of value in the, in the thing that you're delivering. I, I think that's an interesting side effect, but I think in here at Centric, we've, we've actually tried to harness that a little bit too. We've seen some benefit of that and we try to say, you know what? can we keep these teams together in between projects and in between clients? And I think we've seen some benefit to that. And we, and we, we certainly know that the people that work in those teams want to keep working together and they want to keep working in the place, you know, in this, in this space, they want to keep working on projects. That was not expected. We didn't look at it that way going in. Right. We were still primarily focused on project-based development. You form a team for a project and you release them. I, I think in the past couple of years, we're starting to see organizations shift towards a product-based development mindset in which teams are kept together so that you can take advantage of their high-performing nature, right? They've already overcome the storming, norming, forming part, right? So let's capitalize on the performing by keeping them to, together. So, I mean, you, you're absolutely right. And I think when you start talking about, you know, future, uh, we're going to see more of that. Yeah. And like you said, the adoption rate where you are is different levels. You look at, like you said, uh, you can have a highly performing team that does things really well right there, the pilot group. And then it's like, okay, we're gonna start the next team. But now that we have two teams, we need to add all this process on top, right? And then that high performing team slows down. And they're like, well, what the heck happened? As you start to see these things in organizations, sometimes you have to put you know, standard work and different things around that, that um, the impact isn't really thought about of how does that impact that team. And not that it's the Wild West, right? It's like that team wasn't like, we're not doing nothing. We're not documenting anything. We're not doing those type of things. It's just they knew how to communicate with each other. They could trust each other, right? They could look at each other and, and blink, and they know that that means left justified and blue. You know what I mean? That type of stuff because they've worked together for that long. And those are benefits of those high-performing teams. Like you said, Joe, when you start splitting those off, or, hey, the next project come along. You three are really good. We're going to put you over here and you two over there, and then you're wondering why from a people factor that yeah. isn't factored in, the change side of things. So, Yeah, I think the, the most positive side effect for – keeping teams together is just you know, the trust. If you trust that your teammate is going to pick up the slack if you need it. The most successful teams I've been a part of um, had cross-functional teams where I'm not siloed writing code or I'm not siloed working with the business, getting requirements. Everybody helps everybody do everything else. And you know, testers can help the BA. They can write requirements. The 
developers aren't afraid to work with the BA to gather the requirements or write tests. There's just a lot more trust and really the, the t if the team members aren't some of those people that were afraid of moving, getting their cheese moved by the new process, they're, they're obviously going to be more successful. If you bring it back around the value, I think that trust inside of a team creates efficiencies. You know, people know what other people are going to do and how they're going to interact and they know how they're going to work together. And if that team is efficient, they're going as fast as, as fast can be. They're not rolling, they're not working, you know, providing heroic effort, working 90 hours a week. But in the time that they're together, they're as efficient as they can be. They're doing all the work that they can do and that's a great contract to have with the client. We know that these teams are operating at peak efficiency without killing themselves and, and they like it and enjoy it. I think that's been a pleasure to watch when I look at other teams that are doing that. And to loop back to Joe's comment earlier about the business caring about delivery, the whole piece of this, you know, the agile mindset of short feedback loops and gathering that transparent feedback and trust, if you're doing that more often with the business, they're like, oh, okay, they said they were going to do this and they did this, or hey, they didn't do this, but here's the reason why, because we could trust what they're saying, there's an openness there. It doesn't happen overnight, and more often than not, it's not the majority of the time that it happens, but involving the business, involving that through that discussion, um, and shortening those feedback loops is, is how you build that trust. We're trying to get people on board to say, okay, let's, we're gonna need you every two weeks. So like, what do you mean? We used to just talk to you at the beginning and then be upset at the end, you know? So, <laughs> so it's one of those things that, you know, what do you mean you wanna to talk to us more? But you're gonna get what you want more. And, ah, yeah, yeah. And then they realize it and see it and believe it. So, and then the quality side of things just gets that much better. What's happening now? What are, what's going on right now? What kinds of new things do we have to solve for? You know, we don't have, example, we don't have DevOps if we didn't have agility. Because it drove that. We drove the IT people so crazy to provision new environments for us that they had to create a whole new infrastructure and, you know, for, <laughs> for us to do that ourselves. You know, I say that facetiously, but, you know, we were bugging them a lot <laughs> to get new hardware provision and new environments. But we don't have those patterns or practices without agility. Um, we could write the code fast, but we couldn't get it into production. So what other things kind of like that have we been dealing with? I know we have to deal with the fact in consulting and then that we live in a, a global workspace and a global economy. Do we have to learn how to deal with people that live other places that are going to be on our team? Is that a practical thing? That, that's a loaded question, right? Is, is it practical or is it something we have to deal with? And, and the answer can be... Yes and no, depending on circumstances. So in, in today's economy where you know remote work is becoming more and more common, even if you take the offshore sort of component or nearshore component out of the equation, you're going to have to deal with teams that are geographically dispersed. Sometimes the best talent you can get might be in Oklahoma versus Silicon Valley. And so how do you enable them to work within the team you know, versus uh, an entire team that's on site. That's a challenge that I think everybody still struggles with to this day. There's a proliferation of collaboration tools out there, whether you're talking a vehicle like Slack or even Confluence, just different ways of collaborating. I mean, there's even kind of telecommuting robots, right, that are basically TV screens on wheels, so it looks like somebody's present for a stand-up. I've seen all kinds of weird sort of incarnations of that, and that's because people are still trying to solve that face-to-face -face communication challenge. 
every time you have spatial distance, you always have a communication lag. Even if you sit at a computer and send up somebody a chat message, you don't always know that they're immediately there, which is a very different paradigm than walking up to a cubicle where somebody is and saying, hey, I need to talk to you about XYZ. So that paradigm, that issue of geographic dispersion within a team, we absolutely are going to have to deal with. Is it practical? There's many cases to say it's not, especially when you, you know, hit the trifecta of language, culture, and time zone differences. That makes collaboration insanely uh, difficult. Not impossible. People do it, and you know they have success at it. But it makes it way more difficult than if somebody is right here, right now, with the same culture, same language, same mindset. Because at the end of the day, everyone's trying to achieve a, a goal. And that goal is influenced by those other things. Like you said, it's not just different country, not just different city that makes it difficult. Even you know somebody on the other side of the same office floor, there's so much verbal communication when you're co-located with your team together. Hey, Joe, what what's this story about? Can you explain this? There's so much of that in in the successful teams, and, and you know writing a chat message is not the same. They may as well be, uh, you know, so in some other country if I have to walk up and stop what I'm doing, go over to, to a different floor in the office to talk to somebody. Um, so me personally, I know I, I struggle with that on the teams that I've had co-located members and still don't have a great, great answer. Yeah, you, you can't underestimate the value of body language in communication. It, it enables the receiver to say, I'm not getting something without actually interrupting. We talk about body language all the time, you know, crossed arms means I'm not listening, uh, you know, or, or whatever. If I'm standing up doing public speaking and I have the Adam and Eve where I've got my hands down in front of me, it usually means I'm uh, a little intimidated. So, you know, it's insanely important in communication and collaboration requires communication. And that's the other thing that I think we talk about one of the challenges. I think sometimes we misunderstand that communication is not collaboration. Communication is only communication. Collaboration is the mutual desire to solve a goal uh, or a challenge together and can use a variety of tools to do that, but you gotta be able to communicate in order to, to do that. And so the richer your communication medium, the more success that you're gonna have at that. So anytime you separate that, whether it's you know by distance or you know, even if it's just a, a you know, a phone call is preferential to a chat message, but in person is preferential to a phone call, right? So there's all these different mediums in here, and there's all these different ways we try and solve that. We use the term shared understanding based on Jeff Patton's shared documents aren't shared understanding. If I send you something <laughs> and I send you a chat, you read it as a triangle, you read it as a square, and Sean reads it as a circle, and we're like, you all agree? Yeah, 100%. And then you talk about it further, right? Shared understanding is not easy. You could draw something on a board, go through it 10 times, and then actually try to go code it, and it's something different. When I hear other people on our team say you shared understanding a lot, I'm like, okay, it's starting to get through, you know, type of thing. But they're like, hey, we need to talk about that more to get a shared understanding of what that means. And we may have a shared understanding, but then when you actually implement something. So that communication, the shared understanding of we're talking about the same thing is not easy face-to-face, -face, let alone over a phone or over a chat or, hey, I'm going to send you this long email, you know what I mean? I'm sure you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. I understand exactly what you're saying right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and trying to tie that right when we talk about the extension of someone in Oklahoma or someone you know in our centric India office, 
we want to be able to have those team members have a shared understanding as well, not document everything where those folks are order takers. We don't want to send a fully built out thing where someone says, okay, order up, take that. It's like, hey, you want to know what you're building. You want to understand where that piece fits with this piece. And shared understanding, we say probably about 50 times a day in our space, like, you got a shared understanding of that? And we joke and laugh yeah. and stuff like that. But That's, that's interesting because I hope I don't take us down a rabbit hole here, hmm. but we talk about teams having shared purpose and autonomy and empowerment. We don't always talk about individuals having the same thing. And when you were speaking right then, right, that kind of struck me as, hey, sometimes when we do this, well, the exact thing that we're doing is taking away somebody's purpose and autonomy and saying, you just go do this. Don't ask why. Don't ask how it can be better. Don't propose how it can be better. Just do it the way we want it done. And so some of those team concepts, I think we still need to take down to the individual mm -hmm. level uh, as well. I think, you know, we in IT often have a hard time recognizing individuals have talents, um, especially when they're different than our own. We tend to dismiss them. Um, and it takes a really open mind to embrace other people's differences and what they bring to the table that can help drive that shared understanding and even innovation. So, so we've learned a lot over the last 10 years. We've tried some things out. We failed at some things. We've been successful at others. We would all agree that our experience has been generally positive. We're still growing. We're just kind of babies in, in, in doing some of this. But we've got between us probably a dozen or more projects or more, maybe dozens of projects that, that we've done. So it takes a long time to kind of learn. And, and I, I don't think any of us would say we are the master of these skills, but I think that it's been better than not being in this world. And if the focus is on learning, experimenting, continuous improvement, our toolboxes just might have more than the person next to us, but they may have a cooler tool in their toolbox. So it's like, it's asking those questions, it's experience, say, hey, Hey, Matt, I saw you guys were doing this over there. Why are you guys doing that? You know, hey, we should try that type of thing. Just because we're older and have been through this stuff, some of these things we, we've had more probably uh, learning or experiments of failure that we can see, and we have data behind that to say, hey, we may want to try that or not try that again. Yeah, you somebody know? in their retrospective tomorrow may say, if Susie wears blue shoes, we're going to give 10 more points in iteration, and it'll propagate slowly, and other teams will start to adopt it, and it will continue to evolve. So... We should never be done. Yeah. We've learned a lot. We've had a positive experience. So if we dream a little bit, what's next? What's the future hold for agility in these projects, what, for our projects? And we've already talked about, you know, we're going to have to solve for distributed teams, right? We're going to have to figure out how to be able to have people on our team be distributed all around the country, if not all around the world. What's the next pattern that, that's going to start taking hold? A lot of it's switching to teams and focused and people and psychological safety and things like that. From an organization level or working with other places, that uncertainty of not knowing what you're going to build, call it fixed scope, is still a big barrier that's out there. We even see it on the stuff we propose on, right? The client wants to know, what are you going to build and how much is that going to cost, right? And, and how when, long. Correct, and how long, right? So yet we're coming in with agile principles to say, well, we don't know all that yet. You know, we may build it all, we may not build it all, right? And getting that mindset of uncertainty to feel better about, okay, hey, we've gone a couple sprints, we trust you guys. You're gonna be honest with us to say, hey, we thought this was six months. If you want everything you want, it's really nine months. And that shouldn't be a bad thing. And it's still the psychological safety side where the fear is like, hey, we, we went over budget, right? Or 
I, I obviously love Jeff Patton. His other one is scope doesn't creep, understanding grows, right? And it's like, yeah, we learn more. Imagine that. By going in deeper and looking at details, we learn more about it. And how do we kind of get that comfortableness with being uncertain that it's not this fixed thing, it's not what you we said, you know, or that you thought you wanted when we talked about this at the beginning um, is a hard thing still that's out there. Because people are like, hey, we have scrum teams, we're agile. You know, it's like you got to change your thinking of it's all right to not know everything. Well, and it still comes back to beating down that early message of faster, better, cheaper. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a statistic out there that says 60% of all businesses engage in shadow IT. Uh, and for those folks who don't know, shadow IT is a term when the business goes out and leverages technology outside of their centralized technology organization. And this can be anything from creating their own application by using a third-party company to hiring, licensing, you know, uh, a platform like Salesforce, right? There's lots of different incarnations of that, but they start to leverage technology outside the technology teams because they get frustrated that the technology teams can't deliver fast enough because we still do a poor job of setting and managing expectations on, you know, what can we deliver and where. This is an area that I've been uniquely interested in over the past 10 years, and I've tried several times, but I've only been successful once in getting a client to buy off an engagement in which they effectively um, agree to acceptance criteria for stories at the beginning of a sprint, and then they're only paying for velocity for that sprint based on meeting those acceptance criteria. And if it's not met, then we're not paid until that is delivered. Um, we did that one time, uh, had a great deal of success with it, and made the client feel like they were incredibly in control, at least of their budget spend, without knowing the specific end dates and when things were going to be done and when they weren't. We still had to give some high-level estimates on what we thought, but we weren't bound contractually to them. And so that was kind of a win-win, right? Enabled them to maintain control, but allowed us to manage things from an agile perspective. But there's lots of organizations that just they won't buy off on that. They still want it. They want it now. And when you talk about the future, the future is still speed. There's, there's a quote to paraphrase it. There's, there's nothing new out there. So the only thing that matters is speed. Speed to market is what businesses are focusing on, um, obviously maintaining or containing their cost, um, but maintaining quality at their current levels. That's what businesses want today. And if you can't move faster as a business, you risk extinction. Just ask Toys R Us, ask Sears. They couldn't innovate fast enough for the competition. Meanwhile, you've got disruptors coming in the marketplace, like you know, Uber, Facebook, you know, Airbnb. They're entering the marketplace, and then because of cloud and platform technologies that are out there, it's easier than ever for a startup just to start eating away at your market share. And if you're a big behemoth organization that can't move fast enough, you're just going to lose. And so the emphasis, I think, for the foreseeable future is going to be on speed. So we are talking about faster feedback loops. We are talking about moving faster. If you're a big behemoth organization and you're moving down the road, you know, think of a car. You're going down the road at 25 miles an hour. You've got a wheel out of balance, you know, 25 miles an hour, it's a slight wobble. It's not really much, right? At 65 miles an hour, it's bouncing around so much that you lose control of steering, right? And you're going to crash. So there needs to be more precision in what we do and how we do it as we move faster in order to do it safely. But that's gonna require some additional paradigm shifts in terms of, you know, do we really trust our technology teams? Are they really skilled and empowered? Do we have the right infrastructure? And I don't mean just, you know, bare metal server type stuff, but I'm talking about practices, patterns. Um, do we have that in place that enables them to move faster without encountering you know, some of the problems of the past. And I'm not sure that we're there yet, but the pressure to get there is always gonna be there. 
Yeah. And encourage them to experiment and learn yeah. that it's okay that if we didn't get it right, it's okay. Right. You know. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation. I've enjoyed talking with, with Joe, Chris, and Matt about agility kind of 10 years on. This has been Centric Biz and Tech Talks. Check out centricconsulting.com slash blog to see more podcast information and to learn more about our thoughts on various tech and business topics. Hit us up on, on social media to see what we're up to. Social media links are on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.